Here's to courageous pioneers who understand a legacy is multifaceted. Welcome to our Legacy Planning Podcast, a podcast for leaders and visionaries of all ages. Whether you are an independent entrepreneur or someone who is part of a family business, you too can leave something of value behind for a greater purpose. Perhaps your legacy will improve workplace cultures, seize authentic moments, or inspire others with your talent. Your host, Angelina Carlton, is the founder of Design Your Legacy, a boutique advisory firm based in Beverly Hills, California. She is a mentor and coach to leaders like you and has contributed to Alliance, a philanthropy magazine, as well as to women in family business. She has been recognized by Los Angeles Biz as an LA woman of influence, as well as by World HRD Congress for her work. Remember, you deserve great coaching because your legacy is worth completing. Good afternoon. My name is Angelina Carlton. I'm the founder of Design Your Legacy, a boutique coaching advisory firm based in Beverly Hills, California. I am pleased today to welcome Dov Barron to this Legacy Series conversation. So for some background, Dov Barron, twice named to the world's, to the list of the world's top 30 global leadership gurus and Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers. He's the founder and the host of the podcast, Leadership and Loyalty, Apple Podcasts number one podcast for Fortune 500 execs. Inc. Magazine also rated it number one as the podcast to make you a better leader. Dov is an independent contributor to multiple media outlets, including CEO World, CNN, El Italia, Entrepreneurial Magazine, Medium, and Fox. For over 30 years, Dov has worked privately with committed elite level leaders and their organizations who are having impactful influence on leadership, business, and politics. He is also the best-selling author of One Red Thread and Fiercely Loyal, How High-Performing Companies Develop and Retain Top Talent. As a speaker, Dov has presented to the United Nations, the World Management Forum in Iran, and the famed Servant Leadership Institute. Welcome, Dov. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here with you, Angelina, and I'm looking forward to this conversation, seeing how we can seeing how we can serve, how we can bring out more heart, more soul, more depth in, in our audience. That's wonderful. And I also would like to start out that one of the intentions, as I've mentioned to you, is to bring positive role models into this dialogue so that people can have living examples of those who are courageously going out there, they're defining, developing, and executing their legacy, and they're doing it in real time. It's just not going to be like something theoretical out there. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Okay. Is there anything that I may have missed from the background that you would like to add for the audience to know? Oh, if you want to know about me, you can go to dovbaron.com, which is my website. You can see it there on the screen if you're watching this on a video. Dov, D-O-V, Baron, B-A-R-O-N.com. You can Google my name. I'll drive you insane the amount of content that's out there i've got a youtube channel you can find out about that there's the as you said there's the two podcasts and we also have an outlet on medium it's called dragon's den it's where all my articles are so you can find plenty of me don't you don't need to say anything else okay good good <laughs> annoying to me <laughs> okay so let's dive in deep so mm -hmm. how did dov baron become the dragonist well you know um, I use that term simply because um, my background is in young, original background is in Jungian psychology. And 
um, I love myth and I love the understanding of myth and how we deeply connect to the stories in myth. And when you look at this, you know, particularly with Game of Thrones and things like that, people became enamored with, with dragons and what they were really about. But when you really think about it, if you look at all those tales, you'll discover that dragons are these mythical creatures of enormous power and almost indestructible. Um, they are born in fire and they, they, you know, and they breathe fire. But here's what's fascinating about them. Like the mother of dragons. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So like, like with all those scales, they seem impenetrable. But at the front, the front scale on a dragon in, in myth mm -hmm. is translucent. You can see the heartbeat behind it. Oh. So dragon has enormous power and enormous vulnerability. It is that combination that gives it its power, the combination of power and vulnerability together. And in mythology, all dragons protect that which is precious. So in like, for instance, the Hobbit, the dragon in the Hobbit is sitting on gold. That's a metaphor for the most valuable thing. So dragons protect what is valuable and they have deep levels of power and vulnerability. So as leaders, we have, to, we have to stand up and fight for what is really truly valuable, not money, but what is truly valuable. And we have to show up with enormous amounts of power to lead. And we also understand there's not a big flock of dragons. There's not like 900 of them. You know, they're rare. There's a few of them that cluster together usually, but no more. And they're willing to breathe fire onto the things that are wrong and bad. And they'll call those things out while having a completely open heart and being totally vulnerable. That's why I loved that metaphor. And that's why I used that to help me to convey the message across to leaders. That's wonderful because there is that vulnerability there. There's that dichotomy because mm -hmm. they're not invincible, even though they're on a mission and they're gonna, yeah, they're the, maybe at the top of the food chain in that sense. And you're right, mm -hmm. they're completely through mythology from the Asian culture to yes. from time yeah. as, Right. Yeah, they're they're across across the world. They have different forms. So if you're in South America, you can see dragons. If you're if you're in Asia, you'll see dragons. Those metaphorical creatures, those mythological creatures, are there to represent. Now, you know, we can argue about what the 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 history of those images are, but the truth of the matter is, they're always there. And so that's fascinating for me. It is, and um, it is a great metaphor for teaching. Absolutely. Yes. And that's what I love about it, right? Um, you know, in, in all of these terrifying dragon stories, you always discover that the, the dragon is actually very, very peaceful, very loving. It's always not what it is portrayed to be. Correct. Correct. Right. Dragons originally were, were, were viewed as good. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, they, they were totally good. They, as I said, dragons protect what is valuable. Okay. what is most valuable and that's what's really important and we as leaders that is our job is to protect what is valuable and what oftentimes in modern uh, leadership we don't protect what's valuable as leaders we protect what is um most most popular interesting that you you, you can you'll come out and say that why not why not Le uh, leaders uh, across the board uh, there are many of them that need to be called out because they're not stepping up into protect what is most valuable. They're protecting their egos. They're protecting their bank accounts. They're protecting uh, those who line their pockets 
rather than protecting what is most valuable. So if you're a leader and if that is an elected position, you have a responsibility to protect that which is most valuable. And that is your constituents. That is the people who put you in place and what it is they value. If you don't value what they value, that's great. Don't, don't step up to be a leader. You go, you know, I don't believe in what these people are doing. I think they're all nuts. I don't want anything to do with it. Great. Walk away, lead some other people. Right. But if you're right. going to step up and lead these people, you have to protect what is valuable to them. And we'll talk about ex expired experience in a moment. But I just mm -hmm. would like to applaud that you're coming out and saying that because I think most people do not have the courage or the chutzpah to come out and, and actually name it, call it and acknowledge it. You know, it's really important that you say that, Angelina. I want to point this out to everybody listening, because here's the deal. Um, I believe this with every fiber of my being. Uh, there are certain things you need to lead. And one of them is courage. If you don't have courage, if you're flip-flopping on every item that shows up, depending on where your bank account lands, you don't have a right to be a leader. Step away. Step away. You're not a leader. You're a puppet. You're an ego, but you're not a leader. You have to have courage. And what does that mean? It means you have to stand up for what you truly value and not something you... Um, adopted as a value system, but something you've actually self-examined to get to. So this is the next part of that. So it's not just courage. It's the courage to self-examine. Okay. Why do I believe this? Why does this matter to me? Is it because my dad said I should be a Republican because he was a Republican? Or I should be a Democrat because my dad was a Democrat, or I should believe in the military because my father was military, or I should be this, or I should be that because my boss said it. No, no. Self-examine have the courage to look in the mirror and see the warts and all, and then step forward with that and say, listen, here's my battle, my internal battle. Yeah. And because I've been willing to face that and confront the dark shadow, the dark night of, of the soul. Right. That I can step up and fight for this with whoever and for whoever needs it. Yeah. I think a lot of times people are afraid to take the attacks that come with the good stuff of leadership. Yeah, because again, people want to be popular. Yeah, we've got populist leadership. Yes, and, you know, in, in, this will be a time. I believe it with all of my heart. It'll be a time in history that we'll look back and we'll feel great shame, because this is a populist leadership time. And that is, you know, if you look back in history to 1930s and 1940s, we have Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. We we have uh, we had. Prior to that, we had Stalin and Lenin, and you know we've With had Pol Pot. These, we'll throw Pol Pot in there, <laughs> and you move yeah. forward into Pol Pot. Yeah, absolutely. And Idi Amin. I mean, these are people that other people, many people won't know. You'll know because you traveled, but you know these were populists. And whenever that is, then people get behind that out of fear, not because they, not because it matters. So leadership is confronting an enemy. And that's what populist leaders do. Okay. But they pick an enemy that's popular rather than an enemy of a value system, which is what true leadership is. And I can't do that if I don't know who I am. Okay, I'm going to agree with you before I move on to the next question. I didn't know we were going to go here, but we'll go here. Absolutely. <laughs> so I just want to say a couple of things. So the first is it's very interesting you say that because my, my father raised me with a statement, which was success begins when you quit caring about what everybody else thinks. But that has not made me popular. <laughs> it won't make you popular um, as a populist sort of thinking. But here's what, what's fascinating about it is 
You know, one of the things, and this is the dichotomy of populist leadership versus real leadership, is populist leadership is based on understanding of creating. So the psychology of it, just so you understand, is to create an enemy. And you create an enemy with an iconic phrase. Let me give you an example. Lock her up right? Here's the enemy. Here's the iconic phrase. It's repeated and repeated and repeated. So now we have an enemy, which now gathers people to us. That's not, that's a part of how to do it. But when you stand in your values, you're still doing the same thing. You're clearly marking the enemy. So it's exactly the same, right? but but it's the other side of that, that position. It's a better direction of energy. Keep going. Yeah, we, but it's values based. It's not so with the first one, it's going to change depending on what they want. Okay. Right? It's going to depend. Right. So, example uh, Donald Trump said, you know, it's, it's, it's a flu like thing and it'll be go away in April. Right. But privately, he understood it was a killer virus. We know that that's been exposed. Okay. This is not anti Trump or pro Trump. It's just to give an example. So people go, oh, okay, right. So then they say, um, you know, and he talks about how he, uh, uh, hi- uh, what was it? Operation Hyperspeed, I think he called it, to get the vaccine. And they got the vaccine very, very fast. Fantastic. They did a great job. They got it fast. But at the same time, they're sending a message that the virus is fake. Well, you can't have credit for creating the vaccine if there is no virus. So make up your mind. But the whole idea with cult thinking, and that's what this is, popular thinking is, falls into cult psychology, is you maneuver it because that way, because the one thing a cult leader, whether it's Pol Pot or whether it's Idi Amin or Adolf Hitler, is you never admit you're wrong, even when you change position. And that's why Trump said, I will never admit I'm wrong, because that's, that's a cult mentality. I also think a lot of people don't know their values, which again, this is why I bring coaches and other advisors on here because we're chiseling down, trying to get our clients to get to know their values, what it is that they, they truly honestly care about compared to what their parents want, what their job wants, their bosses, their associates, their shareholders, et cetera. You're absolutely right. Um, and the problem with it is, again, uh, as a bit of a pushback on coaches who also get on my nerves too, um, so <laughs> uh, they pissed me off too, because they, they talk about values, but they've not done their own values work. Oftentimes, if I challenge, if I challenge, I do, because I work with leaders. So I'll challenge a coach who is a coach who helps people find their values mm-hmm. and I'll sit with them 15 minutes and I'll destroy their values, destroy them. Not because I'm trying to, but because I can see that they don't understand what values really are. Because values are societal, and if you've adopted societal values, they're not your values. If you have maxims that are vastly different, they are subjective. Finding those is a much more uh, unearthing process, more archaeological dig. So you're provoking and inspiring. That's the idea. Yes, yes. Okay, so I'm going to bring up one other point, then we're going to go to the first question. (laughs) Yeah, see, we're not even at the first question yet. Um. So I, I have found sometimes when it comes to um, individuals that are in high levels, especially when there's wealth, sometimes they live in a wonderful world and mm-hmm. other times they come face to face with blackmail and green mail. And I'm not going to ask you to unpack it on this podcast episode. I'm just going to bring up that that is a reality that comes into their world. Mm-hmm. That a lot of times people on the outside don't know that that is something that they live with. It's absolutely true. I, 
I deal with people who are multi-generational billionaires um, with leaders at the highest possible level. <clears throat> and um, the, the challenge is that they, they are most obvious people who live in a bubble. So what I say to people is, if you want to listen to the worst advice you've ever received, I'll tell you what it is. And the worst advice you ever received, probably from a coach, was surround yourself with people who are like-minded. That's a terrible, terrible idea. You and I were talking about this before you started to record. Don't surround yourself with people who are like-minded because all they'll do is blow smoke up your skirt and tell you you're right. It's You'll never people. grow. You'll yeah. Never, yeah, they're, they're sycophantic. Wealthy people begin to understand that, that anybody who's not an equal, because we live in a hierarchy world. We may not want to, but we do. So in a hierarchy world, we understand if you have more power, and that could be money and influence, that people are going to start sucking up a little bit, right? And so the reason people say to me, like, oh, my God, I went with a leader recently, and I said something to her. I was a female leader. She's very powerful. And, you know, I'm interviewing her because uh, she wants to work with me. So if you want to work with me after interview, is a, there's a process. So I'm interviewing her and she says something and I said, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and she got, I said, are you done now? And she goes, yeah. And I said, you do know you're full of shit, right? <laughs> That's direct. <laughs> and, and she said, how dare you? I said, am I wrong? She goes, nobody speaks to me like that. I go, That's the problem. That they is need, the problem. They need truth tellers around them. Correct. Well, yeah. Because now, now let's take that out of the context of wealthy and powerful, and let's take that to the context of the guy who's working in a factory. It's exactly the same. Your mates are telling you what you want to hear. Nobody's telling you the truth. So right. you've got to get out of your bubble. I watch Fox News. I watch B, uh, BBC. I watch MSNBC. I watch RT, uh, Russian news. Yeah, I know about RT. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, some people may not, right? I watch, yeah. um, I watch uh, Al Jazeera. Oh. I watch all those things. Right. I even read Bright Breitbart. I read all of those things, not because I'm looking for arguments. I'm looking for, well, okay, well, I'm seeing it like this. Where am I not getting this? Like, so people said to me, have you gotten the vaccine when it first started? I said, no. And they go, why? I don't have enough information yet. Good for you. Okay. I don't have enough. Now, did I get enough information? I did. Mm -hmm. Was I 100% failure rate a success? Mm, no, but I had enough information to make my choice. And that's what you need to do. Rather than, well, my dad says, my mom says, the news says, BBC says, RT says, you know, who cares? Okay. Okay. And I hear you. And we'll go to the first question in a moment. I think one of the reasons that lazy thinking happens is either... Um, for the for the person that let's say is the guy in the factory, I don't want to say blue collar, but that okay. Um, I think their willpower gets impacted. Like when I go out into the world and I look at people like at the post office or wherever, they look like the world has just beaten them down. And if I try to say to them, "Hey, why don't you invest some extra energy to think independently?" They're going to look at me like they've just had ten whip lashings on their back. Uh, I'm or, not sure. I can yeah, I'm not sure I can agree with it, and I'll just tell you why. Okay. Because uh, there's where there's a will, there's a way. No, no, not even that. Because I, I think you know this whole resilience stuff is also nonsense, um, and I know that from friends of mine who are Navy SEALs, and they say, you know, I work with a lot of them who have had PTSD, and they say, you know, we hate the word resilient because everybody's <laughs> resilient until they're not, right? 
right? And then they're just <laughs> so the breaking point. Right. So, you know, the truth of the matter is some people are just better at faking the smile. That's the truth. It's not that they've been beaten down. Everybody's beaten down. You know, I have a personal philosophy. This is mine. Okay. I'm not telling anybody else to believe it. But when I walk out into the world, here's how I walk out into the world. I walk out into the world knowing this. Everybody, everybody is trying to feel better. I don't care if you got a billion dollars. I don't care if you're unemployed. I don't care if you're down the road from me and you're in the back alley shooting up. Shooting up. Mm-hmm. Everybody's trying to feel better. And if I can keep that in mind, I can have compassion for you. Okay. I can have empathy for you and I can connect with you and I can give you what you need, not what I think you should have. So I'm not going to tell you to think more because maybe what you really want is a freaking sandwich. Maybe okay. what you really want is just to, to feel like there's some hope in the world. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> I know you I, probably I will... expect this conversation. <laughs> I, I love it. I love the honesty. I, I just think life is easier when there's money. I think that life is easy. There's no doubt about this. The research is very clear that life is easier when there's money to a point. Okay. That point okay. is $72,000. Okay. That is not my opinion. That's what's researched. $72,000 lifestyle for middle America. So $72,000 is not the same in, in Manhattan as it is in Boise, Iowa. Yeah. right? Or yeah. in LA or yeah. in Vancouver. Of course not. That's a very different thing, but it's a certain lifestyle. Past that, money doesn't matter that much. It doesn't matter that much at all. The pain is still the pain. And that's what we've got to address is that people are walking around traumatized in a world that doesn't allow them to own it, in a world that's telling them to smile. When I first moved to North America, I was like, oh my God, everybody's so happy. And then I realized, no, you don't okay. really feel that way. Tell me how you're really feeling. I want to connect with you, the heart right. and the soul. I want to know what's going on because I want to know if I can help you. Because right. guess what? When I'm having a shit day, I'm going to tell you I'm having a shit day. I'm not going to say, oh, I'm good. Right. Because I'm right. not. Yeah. Okay. So we'll go to the first question. <laughs> okay. We there, <laughs> okay. So I noticed in your bio that you had an accident in 1990. Was that mm-hmm. the catalyst that prompted you to find your purpose? So let's course correct a little bit. Um, I and I love your had... authenticity, by the way. Thank you. Um, to course correct a little bit, I have never had an accident. Um, I fell. Uh, it was no accident. It was my stupidity. There's a great deal of difference. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, you're right. In 1990, I fell 120 feet. Um, while free climbing. And as I like to say, I fell 120 feet from a self-imposed pedestal and landed on my ego. I got smashed to pieces. And if you'd have asked me in that moment, as in, as I was climbing before I fell, you know, 12 stories is a big way to fall. I didn't fall on grass. I didn't fall on gravel. I fell onto boulders and got smashed to absolute pieces. And if you'd have asked me the moment before I climbed, you're living your life. I would have said, yeah, and, and I wouldn't have been lying. I wouldn't have been making shit up. I would have thought that. But as a result of that fall, I had to question absolutely everything. And so generally, you're absolutely right, Angelina. People think, oh, that must have been the moment that changed your life. It wasn't. It was that that moment actually embedded me deeper into my ego. Because you had to rebuild? No, because... I was born in a ghetto in Northern England. I'd been a martial artist. I'd been a boxer. I'd been a leader. 
So, you know, you're not going to beat me down. So people would, I made my jaw was wired closed and people say to me, how are you doing? I go, I'm great. I'm coming back. And, but That's you, how probably, I you probably felt but, powerless though. If you were to tell the truth that moment. Absolutely. I felt totally powerless. I felt destroyed. I felt deeply, darkly depressed, but I was not going to let anybody know I was embedded in my ego, deeply embedded. And I was never going to let anybody know that. Not at that time. It yeah. was incredibly challenging. So people think these moments change people. They don't. They actually embed you. Unless because, you want to change. Well, no, because something has to happen. So if I may, I'll tell you a little bit of the story. So that happened to me. And again, you know, somewhere about 10 reconstructive surgeries. And just to prove how right I was, how you know good I was, I fell in June of that year. And in November of the year, I went, but with my jaw wide closed, I went bungee jumping into the Nanaimo River at 140 feet. Okay. So that's stupid. It's just stupid. You but wanted I was control. I was an adrenaline junkie. Okay. Right. I was an adrenaline junkie. Now, what happened was I would, my, my mates would say, well, come on, let's go out. We'll, you know, we'll have a good night out. And we'll make you feel better. Okay. And I got on my mates and of course I was depressed. So I wasn't having fun. I wasn't, I was miserable, but I'd act and I'd come home and I'd, I'd just feel worse than ever. I'd be like, oh my God, you know, I'm just never going to come back. This is terrible, but I'm coming back. I'm great. Would, would be the, the, the motto. And then one night I went out with the lads and I had a great night. I laughed for the first time in almost a year. I had a good night. I laughed with them. I was feeling like, oh yeah, no, some hope again. Okay. And I opened the back door and the light from the back porch shone across the kitchen before I could turn the light on. And across the kitchen floor was festooned garbage. There was meat trays. There were empty cans. There was kitty litter. There, I mean, it smelled horrible. It was disgusting. And I went from feeling joy to feeling rage. And I knew exactly who had done this. I knew the culprit was, and I wanted to find the culprit. And I wanted to kill the culprit. That was the amount of and I walked into the living room and there was the culprit curled up on the couch, looking just relaxed and chilling out. And I lifted my hand to strike, but I'm not a violent person. I'm, that's not my nature. And so I, something stopped me. And instead I put my hands down and I scooped up the cat into my arms and I held the cat close to my chest. And I fell to my knees and I began to sob because the cat was dead. The cat had died and I sat I just on my knees and I fell on the floor in a fetal position and I sobbed and I sobbed crying and sobbing like that <gasps> and realizing I'm not crying for this cat. I'm crying for my life that is over. The life I thought I was living is over. And I had to admit that to myself. And in that moment, I knew that I had three options in front of me. One was to keep saying, I'm coming back. Well, that clearly wasn't working. The second option was to stay in the place I was in, which was incredibly seductive. This idea that I was a victim of circumstance. It wasn't my fault. You know, I could just, you know, I'd always have the, I could have been a, I could have been a contender argument, you know, it just, but I knew that that wasn't me. And the third option was the option to find why I was here. What is my purpose? What is the meaning of my life? And that was the most difficult decision 
you see, so when, when people say, you know, that moment must have changed you when you fell, and I say, no, uh, that, is, that is the catalytic moment that often embeds us in our animal. So remember, I've had a good night out. I'm laughing. I'm thinking, oh, it's all going back to normal. That moment where it could have gone to normal is the choice point. It's the fork in the road where I go, I can't do the normal. Normal isn't working. I got to do something else. What is the meaning of my life? Why am I here? How can I really serve beyond my own ego? And that was a, diff a hugely difficult choice, but that was the choice. Yeah, there was a, a, if I could comment on that, there was a breakdown for a breakthrough. And I'm sure it was painful because not only did the carpet get ripped out from you once, it got ripped out again as you're trying to heal. And it's like a, like a slap in the face. Like it's, you know, how much more God, you know, do you need to tell me the truth right now? Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you probably have this experience too. I've had this experience so many times with, I'm working with a leader who, you know, who's had a heart attack, who's late forties, early fifties, had a heart attack and, you know, they're in the hospital and they, you know, they have this moment of realization. Oh my God, you know, I've missed out on my kids' birthdays. I missed out on anniversaries. You know, I've been chasing the dollar and the power and, you know, I got to change and I'm not going to do that. Okay. And then, you know, you see them three months later and, and what are you doing? I'm working 70 hours, but I'm working on this great project. I go, what about all this? You know, I just realized I'm just, that's, that's my personality. No, it's not. Yeah. You're now operating out of a value system, not out of your maxims. The value system you're operating out of is a capitalistic one. I'm not saying it's wrong or right, right. but it, it's proving your value and your power in the world with money and power. And you have more than that to offer, but okay, if that's what you think you are, off you go. I'm not here to serve you until you get to that next place where you go, why is this not working? Those are my clients. Okay, so I'd like to bring something up regarding what you just said. So Please. money, there's Wall Street, but where is the Wall Street that measures relationships? It's not there. So I could talk to you about the, the, the return on investments and the key performance indicators and the metrics of the, you know, every formula as a business broker, or commercial real estate broker, but there is no Wall Street that's going to go public in stock for how well I love my spouse, how well I love my family. You're absolutely right. Um, but you have to also realize, um, you know, so. So I'm challenging you a little bit. Yeah, no, no, in a no, good way. No, you're absolutely right. But so here's the realization. Um, when I was a boy, I fell in love with America. Okay. Uh, I was a boy born in England in poverty. Absolutely in love with America. And started studying American politics when I was 10. So I just loved this idea of this, you know, this everyman country where anybody could become the president idea, you know. And uh, this idea that, you know, you had such a massively growing middle class and it was wonderful. And it was exporting the American dream en masse and still does, by the way. Um, the challenge with it is that that American dream has all but died. And it's all but died because now the wealth gap is so vast the middle class is dying faster than people will ever admit, particularly the middle class are the worst for being in denial of it. They won't admit it. And because as a result, because they'd have to look in the mirror. This is the moment, right? Right. And so we go, yeah, I, I realize it's kind of shit, but you know what? I'm going to just get some more money and then I'll be okay. No, you won't. No, you won't. The value system has to change. And the value system that's in place right now is exactly what you said. 
which is Wall Street. And I'm not talking about the place. I'm talking about the movie, this, the language the, the, that is now seen as a positive speech by Gordon Gecko, who mm-hmm. is the lead character in Wall Street, that greed is good. No, it's not. And I'm not talking about socialism. I'm a capitalist. I'm talking about conscious, compassionate capitalism. That was the America I fell in love with. That has gone away, and that's very sad. So I love how you're challenging and asking your clients to step up, to grow, because I know one of the arguments that people can have, especially women, I love women, okay, of, well, I I didn't get that promotion or the glass ceiling. Okay, fine, then start your own company. But to start someone's own company, it requires a different set of skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so that's difficult. That, or that can be difficult. Yeah, it can be difficult. But the other side of it is that that means you're working on the assumption that you're alone. Correct. And that is a big failing for women, huge failing for women. They right. feel alone rather than saying, where's my sisters? Where are my girls? Where are the girls who are with me? Where are the girls who are saying, I'm with you? You know what? That's not my skill set. This is great. Let's come together. I, I guide lots of women leaders. I write about women leadership. I want women leadership desperately, more of it, because men have made a balls of it. We need women in power. And, but women have to understand you're not alone. And what's more, you also have to realize that there are tons of us men who are huge advocates for you, who will step to the side for you and let you be in power. You know, a couple of guys who I know are military guys, big military guys are massive female advocates massive in military where you think oh it doesn't exist no no it does the guys are fighting for the women i know lots of male leaders who are saying let me help you i don't want to be in this role i want you in this role we need we need women we need women of color we need people who, who are um bringing the feminine aspects bringing to the, the balance feminine aspects to it right yeah bringing the nurturance as you said the, the bottom line of relationships, not the bottom line of income, but the bottom line. Now people say, well, you got to make money to be in business. Yeah, but you can do it with compassion. You can do it with consciousness and you can make great, great capitalism. You can do well while doing better. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So before I move on to the next question, I just want to add the comment or the insight that I'd like that you're asking your clients to, to strengthen their inner landscape so that if their outer landscape just says to them, Wall Street, Gordon Gecko and that mindset that they can develop their inner landscape strong enough, those muscles that the, that the, the voices in them can be balanced with the voices outside of them. Yeah, I think that that is exactly what it is. It's it, you've got to have, and this is why I'm saying this is the courage. You've got to have the internal fortitude of having looked into your own self. And when people talk about self-knowledge, in my opinion, most of them have got none. People talk about emotional intelligence. They don't have it. They don't really have emotional intelligence. What they have is they've learned it from a book. Great. You read Daniel's book. That's fantastic. Daniel where's Goldman, your emo- yes. Yeah. Where's your emotional maturity? They go, what do you mean? Well, you've got emotional intelligence, but you're learning stuff by route. That's not emotional maturity. Right. Emotional maturity gives you adaptability, it gives you resilience, it gives you agility. And what's more, it, it allows you to have cognitive diversity, which is part of emotional maturity. Cognitive diversity is emotional maturity. 
It means I can be with people who totally disagree with me and not want to rip their head off. I can want to learn from them. Right. Hmm, what an idea. Okay, very nice. All right, so moving on to question number two. All right, so from without to with, what have you learned about the two worlds and how one can overcome all that comes with both worlds? So uh, my challenge with this question is, is the consciousness of the question. What I mean by that is the subjective understanding of that. So, um, you know, without with, uh, you know, if we're talking in a material level, you know, I was born in poverty. I know what it's like to not have. I know to go what without. That's to go without. And I, I, and what's more is, and people are surprised when I say this, I'm anti-charity. People go, how can you be anti-charity? Because I'm pro-dignity. And they go, what do you mean? Well, I was a kid and we got charity and there was no dignity in it. So I, want, I don't want to give charity. I, want, I, I give dignity. So for instance, when a homeless person asks me for money, I don't give it to everybody, but when they do, and I, I always give them eyeballs because one of the main problems of being homeless is they're invisible. Yes. So I, want to, I want to acknowledge their presence. Good so for you. I say hello to anybody I pass who is homeless. And then I've, and I've taught this, I make my clients do this as an exercise and they go, okay, I want you to find a homeless person. And when they ask you for money and you only when you feel right, I want you to give them money. You don't want you to force yourself, but when you feel like this is the one I'm giving money to, I want you to give them money, but don't give them a quarter. And they go, what do I give them? I go minimum 10 bucks, preferably 50 or a hundred dollars. And they go, that's a lot of money. And I go, is it? Yeah. So I say, yeah, I want you to, to say something specific to them when you give them the money. And my, my client will often say, what, you want me to tell them like to get a decent bed or have a hot meal or whatever? It's like, absolutely, please don't do that. And they go, what do you mean? You, you are talking down to them. There's no dignity in that. So they go, well, what do you want me to say? I said, I'll tell you what I say. You can say whatever you want. And they go, what is it? I said, I give them the money. Now that that homeless person is thinking, I'm going to say, get a hot meal mm -hmm. or something like that. It's not what I'm going to say. So I say, I have one condition and I can see their eyes roll. And I say, do whatever you want with this. It's not my money. It's yours. Right. That's dignity. So they said, well, what? And so a client will say, well, what if they go buy drugs? That's not my goddamn business. I don't run their life. I don't have that right. Who am I that I get to decide how they live? Absolutely not. If I'm giving them 50 bucks, 100 bucks, and they want to get a hamburger, they want to get a coffee, they want to get a night in a, in a hostel, or they want to go shoot heroin, that's none of my business. You're giving that power to them. Yeah. Do whatever you want. Compared to talking down to them. Yeah. Not interested in that. And yeah. this, is the, this is the fault in leadership. The fault in leadership is I'm above you talking down to you. Bullshit. I am no better than you. I may have more knowledge than you, more insight than you, more strategies than you in a particular area, but I guarantee you're smarter than I am in something. Tell me about that. Right. When I first moved to Vancouver, I spent every Friday night for six months in the back alleys of Hastings Street, in the worst place, the most concentrated area of homelessness and drug addiction in North America. I sat in those back alleys with the homeless, addicted people and said, tell me your story. Not because I want to be better than you, because I want to understand. Good for you, because they're That's people it. too. And they've got lives and stories. And, and, and I'm glad you're not buying into the stereotypes or the biases. 
But the reason I'm saying this, Angelina, is because I want you to go to the other side. Okay. Because when we're at the extremely wealthy and extremely powerful, we assume a shitload about them too. And it's not true. Yes, yes. You go, well, you've got all the power and you're the CEO, you're the president of, or you've got a billion dollars and you've got a Rolls Royce. So what? Does that, does you think they're happy? You think that the person, the person shooting needles is an idiot? I've met them with PhDs. They're not idiots. Yeah. You think a person with a billion dollars is blissfully happy because you've been sold this brainwashing that money is going to make you happy. That's not true. What I've got in front of me is a human being and every human being is trying to feel better. Every human being is in some level of pain. Okay. So I think what overcomes those two worlds then is seeing the human in them. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Because it's interesting, some affluent individuals can have incredible trust issues, be incredibly lonely, they're not growing outside of who they are professionally, and when you talk about the truth tellers that they, can, they could surround themselves with, they shy away. Mm -hmm. So if I were to bring up succession planning for a moment, I think statistically I've heard maybe 50% at best, uh, people will ask for the outside help to help facilitate the process. That's 50%. Mm -hmm. Well, what we know is in multi-generational families, um, less than 40% make it after the third generation. Those businesses are going to decline or be sold or just, you know, they can't manage them uh, because succession is not done correctly. Why is it not done correctly? Because, and by the way, you know, again, we deal with lots of multi-generational families and they'll say, well, you know, we don't feel like they're ready. They're not prepared. I go, okay, how would they be prepared? Right. Yeah. And they said, well, you know, got sent them to Wharton. They got a business degree. Okay. Well, they've got the business degree from Wharton. Why aren't they prepared? Well, you know, it's age and experience. Is it? Is that what it is? Everyone has to cut their teeth somewhere. Keep going. Okay. Where are they going to get the experience? Right. Right. And I said, what if it's not that? What if it's emotional maturity? What if it's relational maturity? What if everything they need can come through relationship and the relationship primarily with their own heart, their own soul, with knowing who they are? Really? What? Oh, never thought of that. Yeah, I know you didn't. That's okay. Because it's not taught in the universities. And that's what people pay their, their money for. If I get that piece of paper, I'm set. If I get that piece of paper, I can rest on my laurels. That's it. And so this is what I'm saying about the egoic trap of money, of wealth, of power, and of education. All these things are traps. They're all valuable. I respect and honor each of them. Right. Absolutely. But if you think they're the solution, they're not. I've got more tools in my toolbox than you could possibly imagine, whether it's NLP, EF, uh, EFT, uh, EMDR, um, psychology, quantum physics, metaphysics, philosophy, um, neuroscience. I got them all. Is any of them the solution? Absolutely not. Not one of them. I might have thought it was when I was learning it, but it's not. They're all tools in the toolbox. Are they useful? Every one of them is useful in the right time at the right place. It's exactly the same. Yeah. I think one of the things you're bringing up right now, and then I'll move on to the next question is we're told and sold certain things. And then we wake up one day and we realize how different, vastly different reality is. And then can that individual ask for help or can that individual look at other sources of knowledge and education and wisdom and 
and sources of emotional maturity and all of those things that come with the rite of passage. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We've, we've got to have, we've got to have the courage to ask. So great leaders surround themselves with people who will tell them the truth, like you were just saying, but aside from that, uh, the great leader has the ability to say, I don't know. The three most dangerous words you'll ever use is, I know that, when you don't. Yeah. And people say to me, but I do know that, Delph. And I go, no, you don't. And they go, how, do you, how can you possibly do that? And I'll say, because do you think there's more to know about it? And they go, yeah, then you don't know it. I don't know anything. Everything I know, I know I'm learning more about. Yeah. Okay. Can I say one thing and then I'll move on to the third question? <laughs> so I had a conversation with someone before uh, our podcast today. And I said, you know, it's interesting. I was listening to one of Dobbs podcasts yesterday in preparation for today. And um, we were talking with a lady about uh, weaknesses and she gave her client three things before they go into a meeting. And I, I said, it's very interesting because when it comes to weaknesses, sometimes it's safe to be vulnerable and other times in the landscape, if we know we have the profile of, let's say, a bunny rabbit, and we're surrounded by coyotes or wolves or jackals, that might not be the moment where we want to say, hi, here's my weakness. And so mm -hmm. I, I think it's very interesting when leaders are asked to grow up, to evolve in that rite of passage, that they keep growing, keep learning in that growth mindset, knowing that as titans of industry, titans of industry, they may be surrounded by wolves because that skill set, skill set may have helped them get there, but in order to stay there, they may need to be personable regarding teams and so forth. Absolutely. So again, you must surround yourself with people who will call you out, but who have your back. Okay. Right. So, you know, you're from a military background, military family, you know, this from probably from your father, that you have to absolutely trust everybody on your team in your, in your most vulnerable moment, right? In your most vulnerable moment, but they also have to be, you also have to set up a level of trust where they will tell you the truth. If you're going off the edge, which is, and I, I'm going to say this and then we'll move on to the next question, which is very interesting because in the military, because my husband's also prior military, he has pointed out to me that his experiences when he came up, he's retired now, uh, that they had each other's backs, but in corporate America, sometimes the politics, uh, that's not in the culture. No. So that's what I mean by when the, this, the, the wolves surround. <laughs> but again, but again, you said it earlier, Angelina, okay. we have a responsibility. Correct. Correct. And that responsibility is to create that environment, not to, Oh, well, you know, I'm, I, I just wish this company was like that. Screw that. Stop wishing. If wishes were horses, we'd all ride there. That's not how it works. So the truth of the matter is, it's not that way. What are you going to do about it? Stop bitching, moaning, complaining about what it isn't and tell me what you're doing to make it is. Yeah, That's yeah, it. yeah. What? Okay, so I want to say one more thing and then we'll go to the next question, which is very interesting because in military intelligence, the number one motivating emotion for both men and women is fear. Number two for men is respect. Number two for women is certainty or security. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because if you probably, I, I'm going to, I'm just going to make a presumption just for the sake of this conversation. Okay. Oh. You probably work with a lot of men. So you're asking them to, for a moment, forsake the respect of other people, also known as popularity, 
in order to change and increase what I mean by increase, make the culture better, like in lifting its vibration from toxic or prideful to innovative. Yeah. Um, I do work with a lot of men, but it's about 60, 40. Okay. So it's not 90, 10 or anything. It's 60, 40. I work with a lot of very powerful women. By the way, I work with a lot of women who previously were men. And I don't mean that, that they were trans. I mean that they bought into the whole bullshit and behaved like men because they thought that was the only way to make it to the top. And we pulled them back into their yin. They're so feminine, they're only owning their feminine power, which is actually what we need. I don't want them to be like, I don't want them to be that, right? So, you know, I talked about Trump earlier, but I have to say that I would never have voted for Hillary Clinton because she was not a woman. I would have voted for Oprah because right. Oprah's a powerful woman, right. whereas Hillary Clinton was a, was a man in a woman's body, right? So that is the challenge is bringing all of the power of yin into this. Right. And, and the men who understand that. So my men, male clients, I'll describe them to you. It's very easy. They're hard candy. Okay. Okay. I got it. They're hard candy. They, yeah. they look super tough. They look like me. They look like they might punch you in the face or they've been punched in the face. They look like don't, don't screw with me, but we all cry at commercials. Right. You know, we're all massive hearts. We're super soulful. We care deeply. We love deeply. You know, we're deeply compassionate, but we know who we are. We're solid in our maxims of who we are. We know what it is, what the hill is we're willing to die on. We'll fight for that. And the, some of these people are ex-CIA, ex-Marine, ex-Special Forces, but they're all like me. They're hard candy. They're not, they're not, you know, they're not, they're willing to put that to the side because they understand that is what I built to survive the wolves. But I don't always have to pretend that I'm surrounded by wolves. And most of us, are, my guys, mm -hmm. have grown up believing that we have to have that because there will always be wolves. And what we need to understand is, yeah, there'll always be wolves, but you don't always have to have them by you. Right. Yeah. Okay. Very good point. And, and I just want to say one more thing about the women. I think a lot of the times when women uh, have more masculine qualities, it's because they've been so rejected by their feminine qualities. Absolutely. I fully agree with you. Yeah. And that's the problem, right? We got to get past that. We got to understand the value, the enormous value of, uh, that women bring that has been so disrespected, so moved to the side. And, you know, and as I talked about, cognitive diversity is not about male or female or trans or gay, or it's cognitive diversity. Some of my best friends are conservative Republicans, right? And some of my friends are, you know, tree hugging leftists. That's okay. That's, that's great. No problem whatsoever. Some of my clients are very, very strong, you know, bang on the desk Sunday morning Christians, right? right, right. I'm a Buddhist and atheist. And I can, I can commune with any of them and respect any of them and have points where we go, you know what? Well, we disagree on that. That's okay. Yeah, that's great. Uh, cognitive diversity makes me smarter, not dumber. Okay. If I had the button for applause right now, I'd push that button that you have, but I don't have the button here. <laughs> <laughs> Insert applause here. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll see if my editing team can help me. Okay. All right. All right. Number four, how would you like to be remembered 
And since this is a legacy series, uh, what does legacy mean personally to you? So uh, for me, how I want to be remembered is that the impact, I don't give a shit if people remember my name. I did in my 20s and maybe even in my 30s. I don't care. What I care about is that the my commitment is to impact the lives of people who will never know my name and whose name I will never know. They don't have to know my name. I don't have to know their name. I give, and I learned this from a lady uh, at an event when I was back in the days when I was doing public seminars. So, you know, about 20 years ago. And this woman stood at the end and you know people would be very generous and they'd stand and wait in line to say thank you, which was wonderful. And I realized that I had this plexiglass shield, meaning that people would give me a compliment and it would, I would let it bounce off. So I trying to look at it, sort of take it in better. And I, so I decided that when people said thank you, I would ask them specifically for what. So I had to take it in. It wasn't because I wasn't trying to find anything. I just wanted to specifically know what it was. So this lady stood in front of me. She goes, I really want to thank you for today, uh, for this weekend training. And I, uh, you know, it's really changed my life. And I said, would you do me a favor? And she says, what? I said, would you specifically tell me what it was or how it's impacted you? And she says, okay. And she took a pause and she said, I want to thank you on behalf of my grandchildren. I look at her and she looks like she might be early forties. And I'm like, you don't look old enough to have grandkids. She goes, I'm not. I go, I don't understand. She goes, that girl over there, that's my daughter. And that guy next to her, that's her fiance. And as you can see, she's pregnant. And I said, yeah, she goes, this training has made me look at who I am, what's been driving me. And it's transformed my relationship with my daughter. She goes, it will transform my relationship with my grandchild, whatever that will be. It will transform my daughter's relationship with my grandchild, with her daughter or son. And that was the moment I got it. I went, that's legacy. That's legacy. It's having impact on people who will never know my name. Don't care. Did I make their life in some way better? Did I teach them how to have not just some superficial woo-woo version of compassion, but genuine compassion and empathy for each other to see each other as human beings who are all trying to feel better. Yeah. If I could do that, that's my legacy. So here lies Dove Baron who impacted the lives of those who never knew and who will never know him. So L O V E. <laughs> Love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, but again, I don't like using that word because again, it becomes woo. It becomes something that people want to interpret. But, you know, when, if you ask people, and I'm just going to help you, everybody understand this, because again, my background is in the deep psychology. Uh, if you look at that, if I go out, you and I go out to the mall that's close by you and we survey a hundred people and we say, describe love. Most people will describe romance, not love. Yeah. They, so, don't get, they don't know what love is. Or they'll say, it was what my mom had for me or my dad had for me. Okay. But then I say, but what is it? And they go, an energy, I guess. And they go, mm -mm. I said, let me describe it for you. And they go, okay. I said, I'll describe it to, for you by asking you a couple of questions. They go, all right. 
I said, have you ever been in love? And they say, yeah. And I go, what was that? And it goes, a feeling. Uh-huh. But what was it feeling of? And they go, of love. No, no. Before yeah. you labeled it love, what was it? I don't know. I said, let me tell you a quick story. When I met my wife, who I've been married to, it was the greatest gift of my life. Been married, we've been together almost 25 years. And I met her and we were dating for a few months and I was out for a pint with a mate of mine. And he said, he had met her, he loved her. And he said, you know, how's it going with her? And I said, I think I'm going to ask her to marry me. And he's like, you can't do that. And I go, why? He goes, you're not the marrying guy. And I go, well, I am. And, and he said, what is it? And I said, he, he said, I, I, your highest maxim is freedom, right? And I said, uh-huh. And he goes, so how can you get married? I go, because you found more is- freedom there. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you got it. I have more freedom in this relationship. You're absolutely right. I have more freedom to be me in this relationship. So why wouldn't I marry this person? There's an expanse of who I am. Yeah. And he, and he said, I don't know if I've ever really had that. And I said, you know what it is, Todd? And he goes, what? I said, and this is what I would say to the people if I was asking what love is. Love is when you feel gotten. G-O-T-T-E-N, gotten. When that person gets you, that's what you call love. So if you're willing to get another person, you show them love. If you're willing to get the person in the alleyway with the needle in their arm, they feel loved. If you're willing to get the struggle of what it's like to be so powerful and have billions of dollars and feel like you can't trust anybody because everybody's asking for something, then the person feels gotten. This is what we all crave. Yes. So if I circle back to what you shared before, I think the love you were talking about is kindness and respect. And if I were to go quantum for a moment, you know, not that I've done time travel, but they say, if you can go to true love, the the highest frequency you can travel in, you know, not that we're going to travel through time. I'm just saying, I think you're referring to like that, that type of unconditional kindness from one human being to another. Yeah. For me, it's not kindness because kindness is a, is a construct. Like a Hallmark card or? Well, it's a Hallmark card, but it's also, you know, you got to be cruel to be kind, you know, it's all (laughs) true that. No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the construct. I'm talking about something that is the, is the, the core, the core senses of all my work. And that is curiosity. It's Which not is kindness. respect. It's okay. curiosity. You can't have respect without curiosity. You can manufacture respect. You can mm. pretend you're respectful. You can say the right things, but that's not the same as curiosity that imbues respect. If I can be curious about you, if I can find out what it is that drives you, if I can deeply be curious about you, I can have respect for you, even though you're a neo-Nazi, even though you're something that I might directly oppose. And fundamentally, yes, yes. That doesn't matter. I can respect you because I can be curious about you. That's why one of my podcasts is called Curiosity Curiosity Bites, because I wanted people to take a bite into curiosity. That's why I have people on that show who... I don't necessarily agree with. That's what I want to be. I don't want to be surrounded by people who think like me. I want people who don't think like me so I can learn. Curiosity imbues respect. And therefore, out of imbuing the respect from the curiosity, then people feel gotten. When they feel gotten, they feel loved. Yes. Beautiful. Well said. Okay. 
All right. So number three. <laughs> we made it to number three. I know. I know. Uh, what What are your uh, uh, your your three to five top values, and how do you invest your time and energy now in aligning your heart, soul, and legacy with them? Uh, my number one value now is curiosity. Um, to always approach, to try to always approach everything from a place of curiosity. Uh, my next is meaning. So there is no meaning without curiosity. It's manufactured without curiosity. People do that all the time. Oh, this is the meaning of my life. Bullshit. You, you went to church and you think that's the meaning of your life? <clears throat> no, it's not. If it is, that's great. But if it's just because you went to church, no. Sorry. Go deeper. Um, yeah, you're saying, yeah. Absolutely. Excavate so, it more. Yeah. So curiosity, <coughs> excuse me, curiosity and meaning give me everything else. So the curiosity and the meaning take me into love, into getting. And from that, I'm going to cough. Well, you're coughing. I'll, I'll just fill in the space for a moment. You know, there, there's that saying, I think it's by Maxwell that says, uh, People don't remember what you know. They remember how you made them feel. I think that by your simple act of saying, I am curious about you, they will remember that some other human being cared enough about their existence, their identity, even if you might not be in agreement or alignment with it. They will mm -hmm. remember that love from a basic respect foundation platform. Yeah. And so having that curiosity allows me to have to be curious about my own meaning, but it allows me to be curious. It allows me to be curious about what anything means to you, why it matters to you. And from that, I can get to uh, the work that I do, which is your, your source code. I can get to what it is that's driving you. So for me, it's curiosity, um, it's meaning, and that then leads me into courage. So, and, and that's part of my personal maxim system um, is courage. Because if I'm curious, that's wonderful. If I find the meaning, that's wonderful. But if I don't have the balls to do something with it, then it becomes pretty impotent pretty fast. So I have to have the courage of my conviction. I have to be willing to say things that other people won't say, as you mentioned. I have to be willing to, to be confronted about these things. I have to be willing to say this matters enough that I know the hill I'm willing to die on. So curiosity, meaning, and courage are the, the, the everything I need to move forward and be the kind of person I want to be. So it means I can have the courage to look at myself and be curious about, well, that's, is, that, is that true or is that a shitty belief? I can, well, what is the meaning of that? And that circle just keeps rotating deeper and deeper. It becomes a drill, a circular drill. Yeah, I might also add that I think it's like an upward spiral also, because as you build momentum, you get to take people with you by the example that you're showing, because you're like, because right. you're, you're embodying it. So if you tell the clients, you know, the truth of what they need to hear, this is you're you're living it in real life right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's part of the attraction that my clients have to me. And I'll be clear, I'm not for everybody. Like I said to you before, I interview my clients, they, that's an application process, like, who do you, you know, and I'm, and I go, well, if you don't think you need to apply, I'm definitely not the person for you. Right. So we have to go through that process. Because, you know, out of those three things comes depth of integrity. So what does that mean? It means I will fire you. 
I fire you and I keep your money. You don't get your money back. If you're not doing the work that you've committed to do, I'm going to fire you. I'm going to keep your money because you, I know you've got value in money. So I'm going to keep it. Right. So you do the bleeding work. That's what it is. Like, so, so that level of integrity that comes out, because people, everybody's talking about integrity. They don't even know what it means. So I'm willing to be called out on it. I'm willing to be called out on my stuff. And so, yeah, you know, one of my statements of always is a fish cannot describe water. You're swimming around in your own shit, mate. I can see it. That's my job. But guess what? I have blind spots too. So I have people who guide me and every brilliant genius person that I know has other people who surround them. I always use the analogy of Tiger Woods, greatest golfer of his time. How many coaches did he have at the time for his golf? Five. How did a guy who was the best golfer in the world have five coaches who weren't as good as him? Because they weren't as good as him collectively at what he did, but independently they were brilliant. Now the next question is how many coaches did he have for relationship? zero yeah and what did he do with that he blew it up in a big way it cost him literally billions of dollars and a heck of a lot of heartache for himself his ex-wife and the kids you know what there's a pretty good example of what happens when you surround yourself with people who can help you five of them and you don't surround yourself with anybody who can help you none of them oh lesson learned no not necessarily but it could be yeah, I think he needed and I actually have an associate that wrote an article exactly about what you're you're speaking to. Yeah. Although I wonder if Tiger would have heard the truth at that point in his life. Oh, I don't think he would have. Yeah. Because if he would have heard the truth, he would have got a coach. He would have got somebody who could have helped him. Yeah. And he would. Yeah. Yeah. Although I also wonder if he married for the right reasons. Well, there's a, that's a whole other category. And the same for her as well. So, you yeah. Know, yeah. For all okay. Of <laughs> Number 4. How would you like to be remembered? Or what? Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, did that one. Okay, next one. Um, if you could say anything to your parents, what would you say now that you've done the inner work? And what I'm referring to is generational obstacles and remedies given your experience now having done the inner work. Um, well, this is an interesting question to ask me because when I read that you were gonna ask me that question, I thought it's kind of interesting because I've, I've said the things I wanted to say. Which was um, interesting. And I was actually worried about asking you because I thought maybe it's prying. No, I, yeah. again, I told you that beginning, there's never anything, you, you can ask me anything. So I, I've, I've asked those questions um, because both my parents have passed. Okay. Um, my father died five years ago. Um, my father was a narcissist, an incredibly destructive, abusive individual. Um, I had many conversations with him, um, told him what I needed to tell him. Um, my father being a narcissist, of course, has had no sense of uh, being apologetic or accountable for anything. Correct. And let me be clear. And just when I say that, because that's a word that's now thrown around a lot, narcissist. My father, you know, again, I'm a, a clinical psychologist before my father was a narcissist. I know what that is. Um, but I also understand that narcissism is not um, a psychopathy. It's, it, it's something that is trained. My father was a narcissist because he was trained to be a narcissist by his father um, because he, you know, he just never got any love and he was, you know, that's what he had to do to survive. I don't judge him for that, but he was a shit parent because of it. Right. So, you know, and he was all about him. And so, you know, we had our conversations and it was pretty rough and it was pretty, you know, clear, but I had to own that I could not give my power. And I told him this, I could not to somebody 
who was intimidated by me, who felt threatened by me, and who would always want to find a way to make it about them. That was not going to serve either of us. And that he was toxic to my, to my life and to the relationships of my life that mattered. And so we had to part ways. So when he passed, incredibly sad. And the answer to that was, I personally was not. I, because I had said everything I needed to say. And they say, you had no sadness? And I go, oh, absolutely, I cried. And they go, I thought you just said you weren't sad. I wasn't. And they go, well, I don't understand. There's a little boy in me. Yes. That my father said goodbye to when I was seven, as he walked out and made me the man of the house, which is a ridiculous thing to do to a child. Um, and my little boy had a fantasy that his dad would one day come back, put him on his shoulders and tell him how proud he was of him. That little boy's dream died the day my dad died. Correct. So that little boy was sad. So everything was said to my father. My mother passed um, this year, February, 2021. Um, she was diagnosed with cancer. She was given uh, three or four months to live. Uh, she lived about 15 months. Um, I did go manage to go back to see my mom before she passed. Um, in England? In the UK, yes. Okay. Um, I was there two weeks before they shut everything down. Um, so I got to spend some time with her um, and it was wonderful. And we had some really powerful conversations. And I asked her the very same things I had asked her 20 years before that she had refused to answer. And the things that had um, really become a massive barrier in our relationship. In fact, I stopped talking to her for about four years because she was so toxic and uh and i toxic start... because of the, the narcissistic marriage or toxic because she was abandoned toxic because she was toxic on her own and of course so she chose a narcissistic partner because she was brought up she was brought up by a, a narcissist who was likely a sociopath as well uh, my children of narcissists okay yeah, my yeah. grandfather was a horrendous human being um and so uh so when my father came along and doing the narcissistic thing, which is dropping the love bombs, making my mom feel super special. Right. Um, of course, she was completely seduced by that. Um, but, you know, she he, would, she... he would love all the broken places in her. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? And, then, um, and then beat the snot out of her physically, emotionally, mentally, in every possible way. Which is the narcissistic uh, rage. Of course, right? Yeah. And so he did all those things to her. Um, but my mom had her own problems and she carried her hate for him until the day she died. She followed up that by being in other insanely dysfunctional relationships with other narcissists and, and uh, pedophiles and all kinds of horrendous situations that we all had to live with as kids because there's a bunch of kids. We all had to live with that. And so I got to have those conversations with my mom and I got to forgive my mother um, while I was there and on her deathbed, on her deathbed, my sister did a video call with her and I said, even for all the pain. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because that's a lot of real life to give to someone who's seven and making them mm -hmm. like an adult child. And yet I wonder if that's the compassion that you can pull from like the depth of the Grand Canyon and extending, you know, I know you don't like the word kindness, but it, but maybe extending humanity no, I do. to I, someone. I, I love the, I love real kindness. I just don't okay. like the 
the superficial understanding of it. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, if you were to, if somebody was to insult me, they'd say I was nice. If somebody was to compliment <laughs> me, they'd say I was kind. Okay. Okay. There's a great yeah. deal of difference between the two. Yeah. So it's interesting. I almost wonder if, and tell me if you agree with this or if you don't, uh, yeah. your parents did the best that they could with what they knew. Yeah. I think that's a bullshit statement. Okay. And so challenge me on it. Why? Yeah. Um, so um, are you as good at math as you were when you were nine? You know as much about history as you did when you were nine. So you're expecting humans to grow exactly. and not just their bodies to grow. Yeah. So people say they did the best they could with what they knew. And my answer is bullshit. They did the best they could with what they were willing to know. That's vastly different. Okay. My mother would have been told by other people, and I know she was because I knew people who did it, this is dysfunctional, and she did nothing about it. I, my mother found out that my stepfather was shagging everything he could. Okay. Did nothing about it. My mother found out that my stepfather was a pedophile and did nothing about it. She didn't do the best she could with what she knew. She did the best she could with what she was willing to know to stay comfortable and not confront her own demons. That's okay. vastly different. It's a cop out. People don't do the best they can with what they know. They do the best they can to cope with the pain they're in. That's different. Right. So that's like the dog that sits on the front porch with a nail in it. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you think that there's, uh, and I know this is not on the list. Do you think that there's more tools today? More. More tools. Like uh, tools. tools. Yeah, I think there are more tools. I think there's more, um, there's there's more cognitive understanding. There's more tools, but there was there was enough tools okay. when my mother was young. Okay. Um, so, are there more tools? Yes. One of the tools that, if you want to use the term tools, that's more available today is that people will speak out. That's the biggest thing: is that they are allowed that voice that they weren't they wouldn't allow themselves before. So, yes, that is vitally important and very important. But was there always? some support yes even if the support was your mate down the road who would have taken you in and taken like you know where i grew up in a ghetto it's a weird place i talked about this in something i wrote recently the, the ghetto was a place of great dichotomy because in the daytime all the doors were open and all the kids ran from each other's houses and every mom fed every kid right and if my mom had one of the kids had to go to hospital She'd take them to the kid to the hospital and she'd leave all the other kids with the neighbors and they'd feed them and take care of them and they'd bathe them and get ready for bed. But once it got dark, those doors were clo not closed. They were locked. Sure. Sure. Because it was a bad place to be. So the dichotomy was, it was a, the safest place in the world and it was the most dangerous place in the world. What? But every one of those other women also had their own problems and also could support each other, but all chose to bear it like it was okay. There's a wonderful movie called East is East. Okay. If you've ever heard of it, if you haven't, watch it. It's fantastic. Okay. It's filmed in my hometown. Okay. Okay. So where right. I was born. Okay. East is East. Okay. And it's about a white woman married to a Pakistani guy, because where I grew up was with lots of Pakistanis. And he has a wife in, in, in Pakistan and a wife in England, and he's married to a white woman. Okay. Right? And he beats her. Okay. And one uh, of the sons stands up to him. Okay. And she throws the son out and says, don't ever disrespect your father. The son who stands up for the mother, the mother says, 
don't ever disrespect your father and throws the son out. Yeah. That's the problem. The problem is not what happens. The problem is in what we support that's happening. In Germany, in, World Second, in the 1930s, there were a lot of good Germans mm -hmm. who shut up and protected the national interest and then, and then had to bow their heads in shame at the end of Second World War because they were not Nazis. They were good, silent Germans. And as Martin Luther King said, for evil to perpetuate all good it men. takes is for good people to say, say nothing. nothing. Yes, That's it. So it's the same situation. We, we protect the dysfunction. That's the where the quo. problem is. That's the, where the problem is. Yeah. We have to stand up to the leadership that is dysfunctional. We have to stand up to the leadership that is broken. I hear you. I hear you. And so if I were to tie it back to legacy for a moment, and tell me if you agree with this or not, the number one thing I see that stops people from pursuing their legacy is lack of self-worth. I'm not worth it to get that guy to stop beating me or whatever. I'm not worth it to uh, speak out. I'm not worth it to pursue my vision or dreams or passion or values fill in the blank. So they stay there. You're absolutely right. But I don't think that they frame it that way. I don't think that people understand that language. Right. So they don't say I'm not worth it. They go, who am I? Correct. They say, who am I? So that what they're doing is perpetuating their own powerlessness. Correct. So they don't say I'm not worth it. They, they, they say, who am I? So what it means is, so if you say I'm not worth it, by that there is a perception of a greater worth. If, there's, if there is who am I, it's just I'm nothing. That's it. There's no perception of a greater worth. There's no perception of I could grow into something. Yeah. It's, like, it's who am I? That's, that's the distinction. And this, this may sound like um, language uh, manipulation, but it's not. It's a psychological connection that is deeply important because there, there are people out there who are very powerful who have terrible self-worth. Terrible, terrible self-worth. Correct. Some run countries. Correct. Horrible self-worth. Right. right. They have massive egos, massive self-esteem, but self-worth and self-esteem are vastly different. Which makes them good at their work sometimes because they're not working on the other areas. Keep going. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Right. So because they're compensating which is what we do a lot of the time. We overcompensate. Most, some of the most powerful people in the world are the most emotionally damaged people in the world. Absolutely, absolutely. It's interesting because um, if you're, one of your parents grew up in the shadow of another, sometimes they can't, this is just an idea. Okay, I don't want to step on any toes. Okay, so, and I'm not saying this necessarily about your parents. It could be for anyone. Okay, let me reframe it that way. It, it's interesting uh, how courageous it is for people to become the man or the woman that they need to be and sometimes they may never show up for that in their lifetime. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, you're absolutely right. If you, if you will go with unconsciously choose to live in the shadow of somebody, what you're really saying is this is permission for me to not grow up. A lot of people don't grow up. Or, or I could borrow, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this, and then I'll move on to the next question. Uh, Tony Robbins once said for, uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to phrase it how he said it, and then I'll make it gender neutral. He had said, for the man to appear, the boy needs to heal. But I could also say, for the adult to appear, the child needs to he heal, you know, to Absolutely. include women in that. And I think a lot of, when you spoke about the inner child, I think sometimes people can grow bigger physically in size, 
but that inner child is is traumatized and trapped in that moment of time and decades could go by yeah and you know uh so some of the people i work with are um psychiatrists and psychologists who are my clients um who are actually working with others and they've not done that work themselves which right? i love the fact that you're delivering the truth oh yeah i mean it's just like you know I don't care that you're, you've got a PhD. I don't care that you are on paper more qualified than me. Yeah. I also work with billionaires. I've never had a billion bucks, but I yeah. know that I can guide them really well. Yeah. I work with military leaders. I've never been in the military. What's that got to do with it? What I have is the ability to see what you cannot see, what you need to see in order to become who you need to be in order to fulfill your legacy in life. If you're not doing that, what are you doing? You're killing time. And that's okay yeah. if that's what you want. I'm not here to judge it. No problem. That's what you want. But if you're telling me I want something more, then shut up and listen. <laughs> Good on you. All right. Okay. So next question. Can you give your perspective regarding expired experience with Fortune 500 execs um, and leaders who are out of touch with reality? that live in that bubble. Uh, and you may have already I'm, touched upon it before, but I just want to I'm circle sure back. That, I'm not sure I'm asking. I'm not sure I'm, I'm going to answer what we haven't already talked about. So be, be, I'm going to put it on you and to say, be specific about what it is you want to know in that context. So it's interesting. Um, so if I, let, let's say I bring up the luxury industry for a moment. Yeah. They, they want the best talent in order to connect with customers and maintaining and building those relationships in the changing landscape. And yet, if somebody wants to rest on their laurels of tradition, let's say, and not get out there and walk the, you know, when they, they talk about the metaphor of the CEO needs to walk the floor. So mm -hmm. if they want really good talent, that talent can't say, for, you know, for instance, um, this is what worked at Harvard Business School. What they need to do is to meet that customer right where they're at and understanding what their needs are. So mm -hmm. my guidance around it is always the same. And that is the emotional maturity. Uh, well, the emotional maturity, but at a, at a corporate level, at a cultural level, because we do that work at a cultural level is I'll say, what is your culture? And they'll hand me a document and I go, what's this? And they go, that's our culture. I go, no, it's not. It's a document. No, no, no. It, it outlines our culture. And I go, no, it doesn't. And they go, yeah, we have cultural training. That's what it is. I go, it's not your culture, I promise you. And they go, what do you mean? I, I say, your subculture is your culture and your culture is your subculture. And they go, what do you mean? You think this is your culture, but the subculture is the real culture. Example, not particularly relevant these days, but it's, it's easy to understand. If your culture says everybody has to be at work at eight o'clock and you have several managers who don't mind that you come in at 10 after eight, then your culture is not, we have to come in at eight. That's your subculture. Okay. The culture is flexi time. Okay. And I'm not saying it's not right or wrong. It's just understanding what's the real culture and you as that boss are never going to know. So you have to, you have to learn how to be an undercover boss. You have to learn how to interview your frontline people. I go, because I, I, I asked a question, like, what's your culture? Like I just said. And then I say, I can tell you what, I'm going to find out what your culture is. And they go, okay. And I'll come back in as a customer to the front line. 
and I'll be curious me. I'll be curious. Yeah. And guess what I find out? I can find out the culture of this organization in seven or eight minutes that I can't find out in five hours. So if you really want to know how to serve at a higher level, you want to know whether you are stuck in history, get out of the office and not just walk around. Because again, please understand this. You have this silly idea. It's a silly idea, which is open door policy. It's a lovely concept, but it's a silly idea. Why? Well, first of all, if you have an open door policy, you got to open the door. That's number one. But okay, let's pretend you've taken the door off. Do you leave the office? No. Oh, well, it doesn't work. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I'm not, yeah, I get out and I walk around. Great. How many other people come in your office? No one. Why? Because there's a barrier there. It's called a barrier of power. What is the barrier of power? I'll tell you what it is just so you can understand it. It's the thing I don't have because you're going to pay me in advance and I'm going to fire you if you're not doing the work and I'm going to keep your money. And they go, well, what is it? I go, what, who's the number one person who answers to you? They'll tell me. I say, great. What's their job? Their number one job. They tell me, I go, no, it's not. They go, how can you say that? You don't work here. I know it's not. And they go, well, what is their number one job? To keep you happy. That's their number one job because that's their paycheck to keep you happy. So what are they going to come in and say, listen, you kind of suck as a boss. Right. No, you don't have the skills. Right. You don't have the skill. Of course they're not. Yeah. So you're never going to get the truth. It's just not going to happen. Okay. That's the problem okay. is that you've, there's a power differential and that power differential, it will always distort the truth. Yeah. Some people don't want the truth. Well, they say they do. I know. like to believe them. <laughs> And that's why they have to hire people like me because I will get to a truth they cannot get to. Not yeah. Bad people. Yeah. Not because they're doing it wrong, but because there's a power differential that's just not going to happen. Yeah. And I would just like to, to acknowledge something for a moment before I move on to one of the last questions here. And that is that I think that you deliver your communications with a spirit of love. So it's not like you're doing it to cut them down. And so, yeah. No, so I, and so it, I'm working on the assumption that if you've shown up in front of me, it's very simple. You want to serve at a higher level. And so when it, before I'll deliver anything to the things I've just said, do you want to serve at a higher level? Yes. Then that's why I'm telling you to shut up and listen. Not yeah. because I need to be right. I, prove me wrong. I'm happy to do that. I've thrown my hands up many times. Oh, I, I didn't understand that part. Now I get it. But do you want to serve at a higher level? Yes. So I'm going to throw you off the rocks a couple of times, not to, not to break you to pieces, but to break you open. Khalil Gibran said, to truly understand, we must break open the shell of our understanding. To truly get knowledge, to truly get wisdom, we must break open the shell of our understanding. That's the problem. It's the shell of understanding. So when we talk about, you know, doing the best you can with what you know, that's the shell of your understanding. Yeah. do what I wouldn't do. I do it with myself on a regular basis. I have others who do it with me. I'm get confronted. Okay. Yeah. Wow. What is the, and this is the question I ask, what is the precious lie you tell? That's the question I ask myself on a regular basis. Good for you. That's powerful. Cause a lot of times people with money, they, they get so used to being treated better that to dare to not treat them with that same level of you know what I'm talking about, right? Wherever they walk. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, so, I'll, okay. So what separates, and you may have asked this, uh, answered this already, but I'm just going to run through it again. Okay. What separates an actualized leader from a good leader? Have you already touched upon it? 
Yeah, I mean, I have touched upon it, but I'm just, I think there's nothing wrong with re, with re saying it. An actualized leader is one who is deeply curious, who understands that growth is not an end point. And they, uh, the actualized leader understands that we're not looking to an outcome, we're looking to a growth. So we're always growing and growth is not upward, it's up and down and sideways. It has depth. It has breadth as well as height. And most growth is about up, not depth. And if you keep building that building higher and higher without a deeper foundation, it will come crashing down. So an actualized leader is one who's building deeply into the foundations of who they are, what is their meaning, going deep into their curiosity and having the courage to tear down their own structures. So I, you know, I, I, my wife goes, oh my God, again? And I'll tear down the structure of my own stuff. Again, tear it down. We're working on this foundation. This is where all the stuff is like, you know what? It gets faulty here. Why? Something's off. Let's tear out the foundation. Yeah. That's what we got to do. So that's an actualized leader is understanding there is no there. There is no there. The only question is, is this me serving at the level I want to serve, at the depth I want to serve or not? If it's not, let's tear it down. Let's find a better way. Don't wait for it to be broken to fix it. Break it yourself. Break it yourself so you can make it better, deeper, more loving, more delicious, more compassionate, more caring, with a depth of kindness that is beyond anything anybody's ever known. So people know you get them. My custom, my clients will say to me all the time, you're the most compassionate person I've ever met. But I didn't think that you were going to be that because you're, you're, you're tough. And I go, but that's the thing. It's, it's, it's a hard candy, man. It's soft in the middle. I have so much love and so much caring for you that I won't let you bullshit yourself. I don't yeah. cut smoke machine. Yeah, I just want to add that I think that they will fall more in love with their life when they go on that yeah. growth journey. Yes. Absolutely. And, and it has so little to do with money because you can't buy that happiness when you fall in love with your life or your yeah. legacy. Yeah. And what's interesting about it, Angelina, I'm not here to make you more successful. And they go, oh, really? And invariably, I guarantee you'll be more successful. Yeah, I'm not doing the things to make you more successful, but I know you will become more successful. I've got I've got one client. He's five thousand percent, not five hundred, not five, not fifty, five thousand percent more successful than he ever was. What have we done anything in his business? We have, but only in the last five years. The first ten years, I've worked with him fifteen years. The first ten years, we never touched his business. We just got him deeper and deeper and deeper into himself. So everything he's doing was at such levels of high integrity that his business just exploded. Yeah. And who he had he to restructure his entire business because it had to be based on this depth. Yes. That's very <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to add that more of who he is shows up and that's what the world you needs. Got it. Yeah. Where the ordinary gets to become the extraordinary because the ordinary is magnificent. If we could just embrace it. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Dom, very much for showing up today, playing all out, being so honest. Thank you for embodying courage, meaning, and curiosity or deep curiosity for actualized leadership. And I think you are a wonderful, positive role model. And I hope that the people that can tune in and listen to this or watch this video, no matter where they're at, you know, Gen Z, wherever they are at their, in their world, their age, whatever it is, can say, here's a guy that has gone forward and, and has 
transformed from being, let's say, a victim to a guide. Now I would consider you a hero because okay. you're showing up, you're playing full out. And, and I think you're embracing your power to, to circle back to the dragon metaphor from the very beginning. And we can all step into our power. And I, and I just want to say in alignment with what you just said, uh, you know, we live in the world where we think that the power lies with us white guys with the white hair. That's not who has the power. That's a lie. Don't believe that. I'm a white guy with white hair. That's a lie. Power lies with three groups. I'll tell you who they are. Women, because women whisper into the ears of their infants. Whisper powerful, loving things. Whisper deep curiosity into the ears of your children. Don't tell them who they are. Whisper curious questions about who they want to be. Women are, have so much power, far more power. When women whisper that men are powerful, more powerful, more valuable than women, then that's the legacy of those women. Don't do that. Women have enormous power. The next group that have power are the youth because you have the force. You will rebel against the just for the sake of it. And that's okay. You need to rattle the cages. That's all right but you will question the authority. We need you, Gen Z. We need you. I believe in you. I'm a granddad and I got way more faith in my grandchildren than I ever had in myself. And I've done some things, but nothing compared to what my grandchildren can do. Need you to be rebelling against the rules. And the third group are the ones who are the leaders of tomorrow. And who are they? They are the artists. They are the most creative people on the planet. They are the artists who work with canvas and paint and stone and steel. And they are also the artists who work as comedians and actors and dancers because artists challenge artists speak the truth where others are, have deep trepidation. The most courageous people on the planet are not the generals who go to war. It is the artists and the poets and the writers and the speakers and the dancers. And they are powerful and they are strong because they own the power of their youth, because their mothers found some way to whisper in their ears and tell them. So when they're sending you off to MIT or they're sending you off to Harvard Business School, take your artist with you, take your rebel with you. And when you do, make sure that you share this podcast with your friends. Because listen, there's no room for hoarding anymore. There's no room for that, not of anything, not of knowledge, not of wisdom, not of wealth. There's no room for that. You need to share this out with other people. If you found this valuable, if it irritated the shit out of you, fantastic. Share it out with others because if it irritated you, that means it's rattled your cage and that's okay. I'm not here to have you love me or like me. I'm here to rattle your cage because you can make a difference. So share this podcast out with all your friends. Go to, go to Apple or wherever it is you listen to it through. Because I want you to know that Angelina put this together. I have two podcasts. It takes a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of energy to put these together. And we don't even know whether you like them unless you go onto the platforms, you rate, review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. That is your responsibility. If I can help you, you can reach out to me. I know I'm insane. My email is dov, D-O-V, at dovbaron.com, D-O-V at D-O-V 
B-A-R-O-N.com. People think I'm nuts because I give out my personal email. If you want to write to me and tell me what you got out of this and what you're going to do with it, do that. But also write to Angelina, ask her, tell her what you got out of it. Let her know that she's putting in the time and the effort and it matters because it does. She is gifting this to you. People pay me a lot of money for an hour of my time. A lot of money. More than some of you make in a week. So you know what? Be generous with that. Share it with others. Make sure that you let her know and you let others know. Okay? I want to thank you for your time, your energy, your effort, your commitment to staying with us through this. I want to thank you, Angelina, for inviting me to be part of this. I'm honored, deeply honored. And I wish you all deep love. And what I mean by that, in very simple terms, is stay curious, my friends. Stay curious so that you can find the meaning of your life and live with courage. Thank you so much. You're very welcome.